from the racing capital of the world, Indianapolis, Indiana. Welcome to Season 3, Episode number 23 of The Greatest Spectacle in Podcasting, The 7th Gear Overhead Show. As per usual, I am your host, Kevin Krause, alongside my good friend and co-host, the James Bond of podcasting, Mr. John McGrath. And holy smokes, kids, have we got a fantastic show and a special announcement for you this week. But before we get into that, I want to take a moment to give a big shout out and thanks to our great show partners and sponsor, GrimeBoss.com, makers of those phenomenal skin-safe, heavy-duty hand wipes that remove paint, grease, adhesives, your bitter F1 rants, as we've said. It'll take care of damn near anything, because, and I tell you, I use it literally on everything. So make sure you run right out to get yours. Now, this week's show, man, we've got an epic guy that seems to be everywhere these days. He drives literally everything. I see him driving multiple cars on given weekends, but he is a 24-hour of Le Mans winner, 24 hours of Daytona winner, 12 hours of Sebring winner. He is currently in the points lead in the WEC series, going to the finale in Bahrain. The self-made man, the Texas car dealer, Mr. Ben Keating. And as we talk to him today, you're going to get a glimpse inside of the 2019 24 Hours of Le Mans win that wasn't in the Ford GT. You're going to hear Ben's take on that whole episode. So make sure that you're listening to that. Now, also be sure that you're listening all the way to the end of the show because I have a pretty big announcement for you coming up after the interview with Ben. So let's dive right in with Ben and you'll get to hear this guy's guy's infectious. He's got a, he's a great interview, a great driver, and we're looking forward to seeing more and more from him as we move into the rest of this season as well as 2023. So here we go with Mr. Ben Keating right after this. You're listening to 7th Gear Overrev, the greatest spectacle in podcasting. All right, 7th Gear Overrev fans, have we got a crazy, cool, super awesome guest with us this week. Uh, this guy is so darn busy. I don't know how he time, finds time to do it all because he he heads up one of the, the biggest automotive dealership groups in, in Texas. You see him driving everywhere around the globe in that, especially at least as for me, I remember and, and associate this guy with that iconic orange, white, and purple wins livery because he's driven everything from LMP1 cars to P2 cars to Vipers to GT cars, Mercedes, you name it. He's won the 12 hours of Sebring. He's won the 24 hours of Le Mans. I believe he's also won the 24 hours of Daytona, as well as numerous polls, numerous race wins. Uh, Bahrain, I think, is even in that list. There's so many to go through. But without any further ado, welcome to 7th Gear Overev, our new friend, friend of the show, Mr. Ben Keating. Ben, welcome to 7th Gear Overev, buddy. How are you? Thank you. Very good. Happy to be on the show. See, I told you, I know just enough to be be dangerous. So. <laughs> <laughs> now, I find it fascinating, Ben, with your history uh, in, in the car business and all of that, that it took you almost literally forever in terms of race car driver years to get into racing, thanks to your wife, giving you a, a cool school at Texas Motor Speedway. How, how did you not get make that connection earlier? Texas World Speedway. Texas which is World no Speedway. Around. There we go. But it, it's an important distinction. I keep hoping somebody's going to build a replica somewhere at some point uh, uh, because it was an amazing track when it was still around. But yeah, it is pretty amazing. I mean, you know, growing up, I have always, you know, had a love for anything with a motor. You know, it doesn't matter what it was. Uh, and, you know, I spent all my years, uh, you know, enjoying going fast and doing crazy stuff, but I never, I literally never knew that a normal person, meaning a non-race car driver could take their car and go out to the track and drive it like that. And so 
when I got that Christmas gift, just a regular old, you know, DE weekend at the track, I, I had no idea what to expect. I, I, I went there in shorts. I did not take a helmet. I didn't take any tools. I drove my car to the track. Uh, I had to borrow a good old open-faced helmet <laughs> from the end, you know, at, after about two or three hours of, uh, of, of learning how to drive fast, you know, I, I promptly went into turn nine. I didn't have any brake. The car didn't stop when I hit the brake pedal. Uh, and, you know, even though I was a car dealer, you know, I, I had no idea what it meant to boil your brake fluid. And I, you know, such a great community in the paddock there. You know, uh, the guy next to me, jacked up my car, took off the wheels. We bled the brakes and all of a sudden I had brakes again. What, uh, uh, what were you driving? Uh, say again? What was, what were you driving? I took a, a, a Dodge Viper off the showroom floor of the dealership. And, uh, you know, that's also kind of how, how it happened. You know, I took the Viper off the showroom floor. I went to Texas world. The general manager of Texas world said, Hey, you need to come back in January. Cause there's this group called Viper days coming back. And so I went back in January. So that was, I got the Christmas present in 05. I went to the event in 06. I came back to my first Viper Days event in 07, of January of 07. I made a list of all the different things I needed to do to my car to make it a good track car, added it all up. It was about $15,000 worth of stuff. Being the old used car manager, I realized I'm going <laughs> to car, turn it into a track car. It's going to be worth about 15 grand less. And so it was really a $30,000 spend. That's all the justification I needed to spend 50 grand on a race car that was there for sale. I put it in used car inventory at the dealership. And uh, I went to my first race ever in April of 07 at Sebring. And I did six races in 2007. I was involved in six wrecks. And at the end of that season, the guy that ran the series said, Ben, if you get in one more incident in the next six events, we're kicking you out because nobody wants to be on track with you anymore. <laughs> wow. And uh, apparently that's what I needed. I... I put together, a, a, you know, between a Jeep Cherokee and a Dodge Grand Caravan, uh, I, I figured out how to add ABS to my Dodge Viper. And I, uh, I pulled it, you know, I, I toned it back a little bit. I was trying too damn hard, uh, as, as, as is true with any car that any of us drive. You know, the car's abilities exceeded my talent behind the wheel. And I needed somebody to tell me I needed to throttle it back a little bit, be a little bit more patient. I was trying to force stuff to happen when it wasn't there. And uh, uh, that's kind of how it all got started. Yeah, sometimes you got to have those, uh, not only those welcome to racing moments like the boiled brake fluid, but some of those come to Jesus meetings and saying, hey, dude, dial it back a little bit and you'll go faster. <laughs> yeah. Plus two, if you're going to drive a Viper in anger, depending on the year, those aren't exactly easy cars to track. That's not a beginner car. No, uh, uh, but I think, you know, all of my experience of getting, getting, you know, stupid in some other type of car, it prepared me for, for that experience or yeah. maybe I just needed the thrill of trying to drive that car. It was a 2000 model. So it was right before ABS, you know, no traction control and no yep. ABS. So it was a true driver's car. 
but it, golly, I learned a lot. Uh, that's for sure. I can yeah. only imagine. And you've got a long history with Vipers, man. I mean, you were even just here in our backyard or my backyard here in any of this last weekend as part of that Viper challenge stuff too. So you've got kind of a long affinity with the Vipers, don't you? Yeah. I mean, I, I, as I said, I got my start in Viper days that became club racing and the Viper racing league. And I did that, you know, at 07, 08, 09, 2010, uh, 11 and 12. So for seven years, and that's where I learned everything. That's where I learned any kind of, you know, uh, that's where I learned racecraft, and that's where I learned how to drive and, you know, how to pass. And, you know, that was my racing school, if you will. And I loved those guys being with those people eventually made the transition over into endurance sports car racing. You know, I did the, the last year of the American Le Mans series in the GTC class racing the Porsche cup cars. Then I transferred over into the Tudor United sports car championship and the very beginning of that combination of IMSA and Grand Am. And, you know, I, I kind of was there ever since. And, you know, kind of after 2012, 13, the Viper Racing League kind of uh, disbanded and fell apart. But now for the last few years, we've been getting together for a once a year reunion, which has been a whole lot of fun. Uh, and so, you know, the GT3 Viper that I raced in IMSA in 14, 15 and 16, you know, I still have the car that we won uh, the Rolex 24 at Daytona in in 2015. Oh. And I like to take it out and drive it. But it's so much more car than all those old competition coupes or those street cars converted to race cars that those guys are driving. But it's still so much fun to go out there and uh, run with those guys and uh, just see them again. Right on. Right on. Yeah, I noticed that. In fact, wasn't isn't that that Viper that you hung on to? Is the, isn't that the one that's in your show in your one of your dealership showrooms? It is or, when I'm or, not. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> so. so Go ahead. In what I have, what you may be referring to is, you know, after we won the Rolex 24, we didn't clean the car. I took all the dirty, you know, uh, body panels off the car and I bolted them together. It looks like I've got a car in the showroom, but it's really nothing more than all the body panels bolted together uh, to make it look like the shell of a car. Nice. Well, and I certainly appreciate, you know, having having all the, those tire marks and all that stuff from a good, long, hard fought, grueling 24 hour race showing up on the on those cars that that definitely tells you it's been road hard and kind of put away wet, so to speak. You bet. Yeah. So when you started making that transition, you talked about the tour series and the GT3 cars and that kind of thing. Was that a for you? Was that kind of a big step moving from the Viper into those cars or was it pretty seamless? So uh, I'll say it was a pretty big step uh, just from the standpoint of, you know, well, first of all, getting used to multi-class racing, getting used to being the slowest in the slowest class of multi-class racing, you know, getting used to being passed, you know, looking just as much out of the rear view mirror as you are the front windscreen and being comfortable being in those positions. But I think back to racing those old cup cars, you know, back before you had paddle shifters and, you know, you had, we had to pull on that sequential transmission with just the right amount of force. You had to blip, you had to heel and toe, you had to, you know, uh, use the clutch and, and, all that stuff that you don't have to do anymore. 
it was so much more work to drive those cars, but it was so e- so much easier to make a mistake. It, it was so much easier to break the transmission because you didn't do something right. Uh, it, and, you know, uh, it was it was a big step for me to be involved in a team where you have a group of people, not just the drivers on your team, but also the guys going over the wall. Everybody involved in a team is there because they want to win and they want to do well. Uh, And that's very different from, you know, me owning the car, taking it to the track and driving it. If I break it, then I go ah, Well, you know, shame on me. I broke it. Let's let's fix it and go back to the next one. It's a totally different scenario when you got a whole team of people that are relying on you to uh, to not be an idiot. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And that took a little bit of getting used to. But, you know, I'll also say, I mean, I was, you know, I had a lot of questions from the guys this weekend at the Viper reunion, just asking, you know, how can I improve my driving? And my number one recommendation is to get involved in endurance sports car racing because I don't know, you can only learn so much when you are driving, you're the only one driving the car, you're doing it for a a 45 minute race or a a 30 minute, you know, practice session or something like that. You know, you are doing everything you think you can do to get the speed and the lap time out of that car. You're trying as hard as you can try. And as far as you know, that's all there is to get. It's it's so much different. It's it's such a better tool when you have three different people in the same car on the same track at the same time, and those guys go out there and do something that is completely impossible from your perspective. You know, uh, uh, you know, just this weekend when I was racing in the Indy Eight Hour race, you know, I'm driving that AMG. GT3 car as hard as I can drive it. And, you know, yes, okay, I've proved that I'm a pretty good bronze driver. I've proven that I'm not an idiot behind the wheel. And, you know, I think I, you know, I think, man, that was a pretty good lap. And the car wasn't that easy to drive and, and, you know, so on and so forth. Colin Braun gets into the car and on his second lap, he beats my best lap time by 1.2 seconds. <laughs> wow. And that's an eternity. Yeah, it's an eternity, you know. And very humbling. Yeah. My first response to that is, what an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, hey, but, I mean, it's just amazing, you know, it, because with all the data and everything, you can go back and go, okay, you know, clearly I have so much to learn about how to get speed out of the car. And I can look at everything that Colin's doing compared to everything I'm doing and that. There is no better learning tool, in my opinion, than that comparison. And, you know, now that I've been doing, you know, endurance sports car racing, both in IMSA and in the World Endurance Championship for, I guess, eight, nine years, I have really, that's where I have really gained a lot of knowledge or skill as as I work through that with different drivers in different cars. So. I've really enjoyed the skills that you learn in that environment of these longer endurance races where you got multiple drivers in the car. 
Yeah. Well, and you, you know, that's a great point, Ben. And, and I think too, you know, talking about just that comparison with Colin and looking at the data and reviewing all that stuff. So my, my first question to that is, were you able to kind of close the gap of that 1.2 seconds to Colin a little bit after looking at the data and going back out there? No, that was during the race. Uh, gotcha. uh, so we had a car spin in front of us and kind of, uh, you know, in Instead of standing on the brake and uh, uh, and collecting herself, uh, she let the car roll back across the track and took us out. So I didn't get to get back in the car. No, I would say there are quite a few differences. You know, I, I'm still I'm still a right foot breaker. Colin is a left foot breaker. I'm not willing to uh, to change in my old age, uh, and uh, I still. You know, uh, I'm still able to do pretty well. I just don't trust myself with the calibration of the feel of my left foot. And a lot of it, in my opinion, is that of, you know, really learning how to work the car, the, the whole platform or the grip or the balance of the car between both pedals of kind of dancing around the track, you know, managing the grip with with both pedals in a way that I am not capable of doing because I'm either on the throttle or the brake. <clears throat> I'm not Indeed. I'm not on of them and not not working them at the same time. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I'm I'm still a right foot breaker myself. And you know, it's interesting with your history and as much endurance racing as you've done for such a long time and so many of your different teammates across the different platforms, whether it's the P1, P2 cars, the GT cars, whatever it is, it's almost like the bar is constantly being changed or moves in terms of what you can learn and what you see from these other guys that you're racing with, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. You know, I really it's interesting, you know, like at Daytona in most of the last 10 years, I've been in two different cars at Daytona and I love that race. You know, I love that event. It's the only event in the world where, you know, I, I can be in two different cars and usually with the team, you know, with the team manager, you know, the teams hate that uh, because they're scared to death that I'm going to get in the GT car and try to drive it like an LMP2 car. Or I'm going to get in the LMP2 car and, and try to drive it like a GT car. But I really think I gain a lot in all the different cars that I drive because of uh, becoming proficient in lots of different types of cars. You know, for sure, it takes me a little longer to build up to speed in the LMP2 prototype than it does in the GT car because... My braking points or my turn-in points or my minimum speed that I've calibrated my mind to is just a little bit slower than what the P2 car will handle. But I'm comfortable building up to that slowly. And, you know, like this year at, at the 12 Hours of Sebring, you know, I had a 10-hour race on Friday in an Aston Martin in the GT car on Friday at Sebring. And then the 12-hour race on Saturday, the following day in the LMP2. And so I had to manage going back and forth between those two different cars over that weekend. I, I got the pole in both cars by a significant margin. And it was some of my best qualifying, some of my best racing that I've done. And I'm completely convinced it's because I spent so much time in the two different cars who make their lap time up differently, but I was able to, you know, kind of learn 
how I could squeeze more lap time out of each different car by comparing the two of them. That's really fascinating. Go ahead, John. So I got a question. You've obviously you've driven many different types of cars, both street and race car. When looking back on everything that you've been in, what car was just the most striking to you or the most just sort of technically shocking to you when you started driving it? So that all, you know, it changes over time, right? You know, uh, it's all based on a comparison to what you drove last. You know, when I hopped into the GT3R Viper in 2014, having just, you know, having been driving a a comp coupe Viper or a Porsche cup car. That was the most ridiculous machine I'd ever seen in my life. (laughs) Uh, uh, But what's interesting is that, you know, when we started in 2014 with that GT three car of the Viper, we had the most down of any car in the class. And we really struggled for top speed because we had so much downforce. The last year of that car was 2016, only you know, two years later. In 2016, we had the least amount of downforce in the entire class of all the GT3 cars. And the only thing we had in our bag was top speed. And so during that time period, when all these manufacturers were building these GT3 cars, all the manufacturers were realizing that if you pile on all this downforce, then the series are each going to give you enough power to be able to push it through their balance of performance tables. uh, And it's going to be easier to drive for the amateurs. And so they all just poured on a ton of downforce. uh, And and so the class always kind of changes. You know, for me, I am a car dealer. I've, I've got 28 stores in Texas. I represent 19 different brands, but I am a third generation Ford dealer to be the only privateer that ever raced the new generation Ford GT in any race, but significantly, you know, it was in the 24 hours of Le Mans and to win that race was beyond anything else I'd ever done at the time. And I will say that that car is a really special car, both emotionally, you know, uh, the connection that I have through my personal history, but all technologically, the car was so good that by the time I got to race it in the GTM class at Le Mans, it had way too much weight in it. And we had almost no power. I think could have had a turbo line, you know, blow off the car and we wouldn't have noticed. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. They had pulled it back so far to give all the other car to make all the other cars competitive that it was really difficult to make up the lap time. So, you know, after that, I get to go out and, you know, uh, take out all the weight, turn up the power on the car and, and drive it the way it was designed. And it's an outrageously it's just an outrageous car. And uh, it, it's 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 very special. I could say the same thing about the AMG that I drove. You know, uh, I still think personally, I think the AMG is the very best GT3 car out there built. And the reason I say that is because if you look at any BOP table, the AMG is almost always the heaviest and it's got the least amount of air for making power. And I think it pretty well tells you that it's an extremely well-designed car. I happen to be the one of the, I happen to be the only person 
who has ever raced a Riley Multimatic LMP2 at Le Mans. And that was the first year of this new generation. I think that was 2017. It was the first year of the new generation of LMP2s. And at that point in time, the Orica 07 LMP2 was, you know, here, you know, Delara, Liger, Riley, and Multimatic and Orica had all designed the very best race car they could come up with. The Orica was so far ahead of everybody else that now almost it's almost a spec class. You know, in IMSA, it is a spec class. Everybody's in an Orica because you have to be, otherwise you're not competitive. And to me, again, that just speaks to how incredible that car has been designed. But, you know, it's also always being advanced. You know, I got in the Viper last weekend and got, yeah, now you feel like you're driving an, an, an 80s hot rod, you know, sure. uh, steering wheel is small. There aren't any really, there aren't very many buttons on the steering wheel. It really feels old school now. And it hadn't been that long ago. Maybe you can kind of settle a, a debate between some of my friends and I kind of hitting back on the Ford GT. Should Ford have put a V8 in that or was the turbo V6 the way to go? <clears throat> okay. So uh, it all depends on what you're looking for. Sure. You know, in a race car, you want lightweight yep. and you want lots of torque. Right. The, absolutely. The best way to get the lightest weight and the most torque was to do the EcoBoost engine. It, they tested it out for a couple of years in the uh, Ganassi uh, Daytona prototype. Right. They I was just going to say that. They knew they could do it and it was a great race engine. Now, having said that, as a driver, I greatly prefer the 06 Ford GT that's mm. got the supercharged 5.4 liter V8 because you can hear the whine of the supercharger. You got the big gurgling V8 with a with a decent cam in it. When you rev it up, it just sounds gorgeous. Yes, agreed. So, as a driver, I love the sound and the feel, the experience of driving the 06. Gotcha. As a racer, as far as Pure performance on the racetrack, the EcoBoost was the was the best solution for sure. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Interesting. You know, and I gotta I'm just thinking, I there's it's almost impossible, Bended, to track every different type of car that you drove. And and like you said, you know, a lot of times for however many years it's been at Daytona now, where you've been driving multiple cars. And I think even though I had heard of you before one of the 24 hours of Daytona, I then all of a sudden I heard, oh, Ben Keating, who is driving this car, is now in this car. And I'm like, wait a second. I'm like, how is this guy jumping into so many dang cars? So my question for you, Ben, is with everything that you drive in multiple classes, multiple cars, how what is the most number of cars across any of the different series that you've driven in a single season? Like how many, how many different cars have you driven in, at the most in, in a single season? Three. Because yeah, no, maybe only two, actually. Maybe only two. Because whatever one of the cars I race at Daytona is going to be my full season ride, and then the other is something else. So that's what it's been every year. Yeah, the only place where I've really driven two different cars in a race is at Daytona. It's the only race you can really pull it off. But other than that, so I've driven different cars in different series, but uh, in one series, it would only be two different cars. But 
you know, I've done Lama eight times now in seven different cars. Uh, wow. uh, I did it in the Viper in 2015. I was in LMP2s, different ones in, in 16 and 17. It got third place in GTM and a Ferrari in 18. We won in the Ford GT in 19. On Monday after the race, we were disqualified. And then in 2020, I was in a Porsche RSR. Then I've been in the Aston Martin for the last two years. And I can, you asked specifically about race cars. Also, one of the significant racing events for my life, every bronze old car guy dream is to be in the biggest race in the world and have it be on your shoulders to win it and be able to pull it off. And so the way that we did the strategy in 2019 for Lamont was for me to push all of my drive time to the end of the race. And so I had to do three hours of racing in the last three hours and 20 minutes of the race. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we had roughly call it 30 minutes to go in the race. They had penalized us for a couple of things. And uh, it, so I get on the, I get back out on the track and Bill Riley comes on the radio and says, you know, Ben, I'm really sorry about that, you know, but we still have a chance. And, uh, and I had been saving fuel trying to extend my drive time to get to the three hour mark. And so I, I know Bill well enough to know that that's not how he talks. I come on the radio and I said, what the hell do you mean? We still have a chance. And he said, well, you've got Jörg Bergmeister. That's only 12 seconds behind you in second place. And you still have 20 minutes of driving to do. And I said, well, do I still need to save fuel? And he said, no. And I basically did a 20 minute qualifying session. Yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, I did. I did the fastest laps that I've ever done at Le Mans at that point in time in the last 20 minutes of the race. And I turned it over to my co-driver with a three second lead and he closed the deal. And as far as a racing experience, that was one of the most special experiences that you dream of as a, as a bronze driver. But I'd also say, you know, this year at Le Mans, it was really special. We won the race in the Aston Martin which was, you know, everybody talked about it being a redemption or revenge or whatever from being disqualified in 2019. That's not how I viewed it. But what really made that race special this year was that we clearly did not have the fastest car. The Porsches were about two seconds a lap quicker than every everybody else. But for three drivers and a whole team of people to have an absolutely perfect race with no penalties, no excursions, no spins, no mistakes, a perfect race. And to know that everybody on the team did their job, they did it well. And that's why we earned the win makes that experience also one of the most special uh, in my career. I'm sorry, John, go ahead. Yeah, just as a, as a myself, who's just a racing fan, you know, I'll watch race. And of course I was, I I did watch the, when the disqualification happened, I was, I was sort of sad because I was, I was legitimately pulling for you guys, but how does that process happen when they approach you about something like that? Cause as a race fan, all we hear is up oh, X car with X team, they've been penalized for whatever disqualified for X reason. Tell us how does that process work? 
So it would be a pretty good podcast to go through the last eight years to talk about all the different series that have different have made up rules, have changed rules as a result of something that I have done. I, I uh, all right, seventh year over at fans, take note of this. We're going to have Ben back on just to do that yeah, specific podcast. Just that for yeah. Uh, so what I will say is that back on that. I think it's old enough now that it's probably appropriate to talk about. But, you know, back if you don't want to, we can totally not. I'll just say that our pit stops were faster than everybody else's because we exploited a loophole in their rules. Mm. We were within the rules, but we were the only people to exploit the loophole. And so now they've changed the rules on pit stops to where it's impossible to do that. They realized partway through the race that that we were exploiting a loophole in the rule. And they set out, in my opinion, they set out to make sure that we didn't get to profit from it. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, That is why we got a hole knocked in our front bumper in the first hour of the race. We raced like that for 22 hours. There were other cars on track that had worse damage than we did, but they forced us to come in and change our nose because we had a two and a half minute lead. Anyway, they were very intent on making our life difficult. They were also very intent on completely dissecting our fuel system because they wanted to figure out what in the hell was going on with our pit stops. Sure. Sounds like an old (laughs) Roger Penske style move. Yeah. And so... What I'll say is that the team is responsible for determining, you know, we were given 96 liters in capacity in the fuel cell. The team is responsible for making sure that the fuel cell doesn't have any more capacity than 96 liters. And we do that by putting these little plastic blocks inside the fuel cell to take up the volume on the inside so that you can only put in 96 liters. That's the team's responsibility. We were not fast compared to the other cars. We were concerned we did not have the pace. And I was personally involved in the decision to set our fuel cell exactly at 96 liters. I was, it was easy for me to stomach because I was involved in that decision. What happened during the race is, you know, so most people may not know, but a a fuel cell is a metal box with a thick rubber bladder on the inside of it so that if a car gets into an, a wreck, you know, you don't have fuel that spilled everywhere. And at some point during the race of being filled up and emptied and filled up and emptied or heating up or vibrations or whatever it is, somehow or another, you know, we had a wrinkle in our rubber bladder or a corner of the fuel cell that the rubber bladder got better into a corner. Somehow or another, the fuel cell expanded during the race by 400 milliliters, you know, four, wow. tenth, four tenths of a liter. And so the way they test it is on Monday after the race, everybody goes home after the race. All the cars are in park for May. Nobody can touch them. The next day, they start putting them through tech inspections. We knew we were going to be completely dissected. The way they check the volume of your fuel cell is you take your fuel rig and you fill it up. 
and then you pump it out and they measure what comes out. Okay. It came out at 96.4 liters. They did the test three times. Wow. It came out at 96.4 liters. And it clearly says in the rule book that they give you one-tenth of a liter leeway. They give you 100 milliliters leeway. If you're over 100 milliliters above capacity, then you're disqualified. That's clearly what it says in the rule book. And it's, it read that before we started the race. And so, yes, I do believe there was a witch hunt. I do believe they were going to dissect the car and find something. However, we made it really, really easy on them. The first thing they checked was the capacity. We were at 96.4. Bingo. That's disqualifications. No questions asked. And so I can't, you know, I can't blame them. I can't complain to them. You know, all I all I can do is accept what it is because I was involved in the decision to set it at 96 liters. Having said that, we were burning six and a half liters per lap. Wow. Yeah. So a lot. I also know that, I mean, of course, it's a really long lap, you know, 13 and a half miles or yeah, so. Sure. Uh, but I, I, I also know that we did not win because of that. We did not gain an advantage because of that. You know, we wouldn't have gotten to turn two on 400 milliliters when you're burning six and a half liters a lap. Right. Uh, and so because I know that it was not, you know, we were not cheating because I know that it was not intentional because I know that we did not gain an advantage. I still tell everybody I won that race. Mm-hmm. Everybody in that race knows who won that race. You know, it was one based off strategy. And when they took the trophy away from me, I called the trophy shop in Lamont and I ordered a new set of trophies for everybody on the team. That's cool. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I display it proudly because we won that race as far as I'm concerned. Why was there such a witch hunt against you guys, though? Because you were exploiting the loophole or was there more to it than that? Well, it, or can you even speak on that? I have a ton of conspiracy theories. Yes, I think it was because we were exploiting the loophole. There are a lot of people that think that the ACO was upset with Ford because they closed a transmission plant in that county, in that part of France that cost 800 jobs in the county. There were people speculating that they would they were upset with Ford and had a witch hunt because of that. There were people that speculated that uh, they were still upset with Ford, how much of a advantage they had the first year those cars came to Lamar. I personally think it was all just because of us exploiting the loophole. You know, all the other teams complaining, it's impossible for those guys to do a pit stop that quickly. And so when you have all the other teams complaining about one team having fast pit stops, they feel like they've got to do something about it. That's what right. I think. You and know. if they hadn't have done something, then there, there'd have been a riot, basically. That's right. Letting it go. You know, if the shoe was on the other foot, I'd be leading the, I'd be standing there with a pitchfork leading the uh, witch hunt. <laughs> right. So you talked a little bit about some of the most special moments in your racing career, Ben. What would you say is, is at least in, in terms of now, because much like the cars, it always changes based on different things that you drive and different experiences. But what would you put right at the top of your list in terms of the most special, whether it's a, a win or a pole or a, a just yeah. an incredible race yeah. you guys had? This year at Le Mans, 
you know, that's what I already described it. You know, this year at Lamont was super, super special. What I love, you know, the, a big difference between IMSA racing and, and, and world endurance racing. Both the classes that I run in require one bronze, one silver, and one pro. I'm assuming the listeners understand that every driver has a driver rating. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, you know, the classes I'm in require one bronze, one silver, one pro, which either gold or platinum. In IMSA, to a certain extent, because of the safety car rules, they don't do a full course yellow. Anytime there's any kind of an incident on track, they do a safety car. They bunch everybody up again. Anytime that I gain, if, if, I'm, if I've got a half a lap lead on the field in the LMP2 class, then I lose that advantage. If I'm half a lap behind the field, then I gain what I've lost. And so in, L, you know, in IMSA, you know, there are, it, it creates exciting racing. But for me personally, as a bronze driver, my main job is just to keep the car clean. Just don't screw up, which is, it's fun to be fast. It's fun to be on the pole. It's fun to have the lead, but I don't feel like the race finish depends on me other than keeping the car in clean, perfect shape. In in the World Endurance Championship, which is, you know, Lamar is one of the WEC races, over there, you very rarely have a safety car. If there's an incident, then they go full course yellow. Everybody keeps their position on the track as you go around. So if I'm able to get a 10 second lead or a 20 second lead in a race, when I'm out there driving compared to the other bronze drivers in the class, in most cases, I think I get to keep that. I get to contribute that to the team I get, I get to make life easier on my pro, and I love the scenario of feeling like I really contribute. This particular year at Lamar, I really felt like I contributed a lot, which was super special, just because even with three hours left to go in the race, we didn't think we were going to win it. We didn't think we had a shot to win it. We had a Porsche that was in second place and a Porsche that was in third place. And because they were two seconds a lap quicker than we were, they were going to catch us and pass us. And we were going to get third. One of them broke, had a suspension failure, and the other one went through the gravel because they were trying hard to catch us. And uh, you know, just having a perfect race and knowing that I was a lead contributor to the finish is super special. That's awesome. That's super cool, Ben. It's got to be an amazing feeling for sure. And, you know, that kind of begets another question too, Ben, because you've driven with some of the world's best in terms of your teammates. So who would you rank at the top of your co-driver list of everybody that you've driven with? So my number one deal is I'm doing this for fun. Yeah, this is not work. I don't own any team. I don't own the team. I don't own the car. I don't manage any people. As soon as I start doing any of that, it becomes work. And I work really hard to make sure that this is not work. This is fun. And if it's going to be fun, then I need to be with a group of people that I enjoy being with. That's that's rule number one. And, you know, I was with Jerome Bleekemolen for seven years. I just love that dude. He's so good. He's so smart behind a wheel. I've never met anybody that's better at determining race strategy while you're driving the car. It's unbelievable what he's capable of figuring out while he's racing. I was with 
I was teammates with Felipe Fraga for a couple of years. Just an unbelievable guy. I love him. You know, I'm still great friends with all these guys. You know, this year in the Aston, I'm with Marco Sorensen. And uh, I've got some I've got some pretty fun announcements coming up in the next in the next month that will uh, I'll be able to talk about some more cool people that I'll be driving with. But, you know, my my number one thing is that I've got to really love the people I'm with. And, you know, I, I love you know, Bill Riley is just a fun guy to be around. I love the dude. Bobby Oregle that runs PR1 and the LMP2 team is just a great guy. It's a great family atmosphere there. Tom Ferrier in the World Endurance Championship, again, just a great guy. And so I really lean heavily towards being with people that I enjoy being around. The difference in speed between most golds and platinums is not it's not as big as it is between the differences between bronzes or even the differences between silvers. And uh, there are a lot of really, really quick guys who are also really, really good guys. Uh, and that's a requirement for being teamed with me, I guess is what I would say. Very cool. Very cool. And I was actually, you kind of alluded to the, uh, there a little bit. I was going to ask you, can you talk about your 2023 plans, if at all, at this point? I know you said you got announcements coming up and I don't want to jump the gun or jump the shark, but what do you got going on? I can't yet. I hope that it it's similar to this year. You know, I hope to do a full season of the World Endurance Championship again. It's the last year of the GTE spec car, uh, which I love the GTE spec car. And I want to be part of the final year for GTE. I want to be part of the 100th anniversary for Lamar. And I also expect to be in the four long races in IMSA, the Michelin North American Endurance Cup. You know, I've won that five out of the last six years and I'm dead set to, uh, to win it again next year. And so I'll be back in the LMP2 there in the four long races over there. You know, the focus right now is I've been racing a really long time. Last year was the first time I ever won a true full season championship in IMSA in the LMP2. Right now, we got one race left in the World Endurance Championship. Got a 20-point lead in the championship over there. We got an eight-hour race in Bahrain. The eight-hour races in that series have one and a half times the point values. The last two races I've been in, I've had incident, you know, there have been incidents and we've not finished the race. And so it's been a good lesson for me, a reminder to me that in order to finish first, you must first finish. I'm going to be 100% mainly focused on the championship over there. I don't care about the race finish. I just care about winning the world championship. You know, that would be definitely another box to to check off on the uh, on the dream the dream list. No kidding. No kidding. Definitely another feather in your cap that has so many of them already. <laughs> but, and we sure, we sure hope you close that deal out, Ben. Now I know we're, uh, we're, we've taken up a good bit of your time here, but John, have you got anything here left for, for Ben before we let him go and, and get on with the rest of his day? Cause I'm sure he's got people waiting on. Yeah. Him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I guess, uh, you know, me being a huge car guy as I am, I'm just curious, what's your daily driver? Ah, so I've got five Dodge Chrysler Jeep stores, Dodge Chrysler Jeep Ram, I guess I should say. Uh, I still want to call them Chrysler stores, but my favorite daily driver is a Jeep Trackhawk. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Jeep Cherokee, all-wheel drive, you know, 765 horsepower. You know, it looks like a total mom mobile and it'll blow anybody off the line. It's so much fun to drive. 
unfortunately they don't make it anymore. Yeah. So right now I'm driving another hot rod mom mobile. I'm driving an E 63 S station wagon, a Mercedes Benz station wagon with the, uh, bi turbo V eight all wheel drive, you know, a hot rod wagon. That car is pretty badass. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. Well, fantastic. So Ben, again, Thanks for taking the time with us this afternoon. We sure, uh, both of us, John and I, wish you the best at the final uh, WEC race there, the eight-hour. Uh, we're hoping you, you add another championship. We would love to have you back on the show here uh, when your schedule allows. Maybe we can talk more about your plans for 23 once uh, once they come, come to fruition in the point where you can talk about them. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, guys. I enjoyed being with you. It was great having you. It was a pleasure for both of us. It was great to finally meet you, Ben. You've been one of those guys that I've I've admired over the years. And when I had the opportunity to to connect with you, to possibly have you come on, I was like, heck yeah, I want to talk to Ben. Ben's a good guy. So thank you very, very much, Ben. Appreciate your time. So quick plug, if any of your listeners need a new car, they should go to KeatingAuto.com. We have many listeners in Texas, Ben. We have many (laughs) listeners in Texas, and I will definitely make sure that uh, we make that plug and get them your way. So So I'll tell you what, next year I'm looking to get a sports car, so maybe I'll hit you up. All right. All right, Ben. Once again, best of luck the rest of the way in the WEC Championship. Looking forward to getting back back with you, and thanks for coming on the seventh year over I've showed today, my friend. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Wow. I loved hearing Ben's take on that 2019 24-hour Le Mans deal, as well as his his take on how to for drivers to get better as he was here in my backyard just a couple weeks ago for the SRO Viper weekend. So at any rate, as we get close to throwing the checkered flag on this week's show, I want to, again, take a moment to thank Ben Keating for his time this week. What a fantastic guest, along with my co-host, John McGrath, and our great friends and partners over at grindboss.com. Now, as always, I'm going to ask you, if you guys like what you're hearing, you're spreading the word, right? You're liking us, you're rating us, reviewing us, sharing us with your friends and doing what? Smashing that damn subscribe button, right? Smash the damn subscribe button so you get the drop on every new episode and every bit of content that we're cranking out here pretty much on a weekly basis now. So thank you all very much for your listenership. We are now well over 4,000 downloads in just three short seasons, and we appreciate all of your support. Now, that announcement that I alluded to at the top of the show, it's been a pretty mega week, I have to say, for yours truly. Last weekend, I was fortunate enough to be asked to be the MC for a group of McLaren guests at the Velocity Historic event at beautiful Laguna Seca Raceway. Why is that so significant? Because you may have seen on some of my personal social media posts that I had the honor and the pleasure to be able to introduce five, yeah, count them five, titans of motorsports. I interviewed Pato Award, Aero McLaren SP IndyCar driver. Mario Andretti. Yeah, that Mario Andretti. I also interviewed Tanner Faust, McLaren's extreme e-driver, global rallycross champion, Formula Drift champion, you name it, he's driven it. As well, I got to interview two-time Formula One world champion, Mika Hakkinen. And then there's the wizard behind the curtain, the CEO of McLaren racing himself, Mr. Zach Brown. All together, be sure that you come back and listen to next week's show where you'll get to hear that interview along with John and my race review of the USGP in Austin, Texas. So with that said, folks, one last big thank you to our special guest this week, Ben Keating, grindboss.com, as well as John McGrath and all of you listeners. So when I talk about that next week's show, that will be October 25th. So do not miss the October 25th show with that interview with those five superstars. That was the dream team for sure. And again, great honor and pleasure for me to be able to do. So with that said, folks, I'm going to wrap up and get the hell out of here because I can. See ya. Thank you for listening to the Seventh Gear Overrev Show with Kevin Krause and John McGrath, the greatest spectacle in podcasting. 